0: Well, we get back into our series in Isaiah. Uh, we're going to, like I said at the very beginning, 66 chapters and uh, only like nine weeks, nine Sundays. I had to pick and choose. So um, we're going to be skipping some chapters here, and, and, and maybe you don't remember the last chapter we were in, and that's fine with me because then it won't matter as far as where we end up today. But uh, today we're going to be looking at Isaiah 40 and a chapter that you're probably familiar with, especially the last verse. You're probably pretty familiar with. And we'll get to there in due time. But I uh, wanted to uh, look at this chapter because I think it will help us in a lot of ways and, uh, and hopefully speak to all of us deeply. So uh, I'll let you look in, in the Bible for that one. And there's Bibles there in the, in the pews for you as well, too. And uh, basically, if you open up your Bible and you find Psalms, then turn to the right until you find Isaiah. <laughs> you'll, you'll land there. But uh, Isaiah, again, like I've mentioned, is a, a very large large book. has plenty in there about uh, encouragement, uh, exhortation, but also there's, there's comfort. And, and we're going to see that. And actually, let me back up just one chapter from uh, Isaiah 40. And just kind of give us a running start into chapter forty uh, chapter thirty nine is not a big chapter, but uh, let me summarize it real quick again to give us some background and get us moving in, in, into chapter forty uh, Hezekiah the king he recovers from this illness and it was uh, basically uh, illness uh, he was going to die, and then uh, he pleaded with God, and god said okay i 'll give you fifteen more years, and so that was going to happen and so Babylon hears about the recovery that Hezekiah had from this illness, and he, they, they wanted to form an alliance with Judah against Assyria because Assyria is the enemy, and, and the king of Babylon sends his, his son to Jerusalem with letters and gifts to Hezekiah, I'm um, glad you're doing better, and maybe we can get together and, and figure some things out here with Assyria. And so while there, Hezekiah then shows his group everything Israel has. Take a look at these things. Isn't this magnificent? And he opens up everything, including its treasuries and all the things, just showing these things to, to uh, uh, those from Babylon. And God alerts Isaiah to it, who proceeds to confront Hezekiah on it. Uh, basically, what are you thinking? <laughs> and Hezekiah is honest about what he did, but it still costs Judah. Everything that Hezekiah showed the ba- to the Babylonians will be taken away by them. And on top of that, some of Hezekiah's sons will be taken too. So Hezekiah's response to all this is very telling. In uh, verse 8 of Isaiah 39, it says, "'The word of the Lord you have spoken is good,' Hezekiah replied, for he thought, "'There will be peace and security in my lifetime.'" <laughs> kind of interesting little observation there that everything's going to be nice. At least it won't happen during my reign. Uh, make, make the next group pay and, uh, you know, I'll be fine here. But unfortunately, Hezekiah didn't finish well. His son Manasseh, you probably are aware of, is considered the worst king in the history of Israel. Judah goes back to sinning worse than it did before, and because of that, God doesn't spare the rod. Judah goes into captivity for 70 years, and as a result, God must comfort His people. Which brings us then to Isaiah 40. And like I mentioned before, the book of Isaiah is often considered to be like a little version of the Bible. And right here we see the division between chapter 39 and chapter 40. The author shifts his focus from warning and impending judgment for their disobedience to God and then over to comfort and hope. And and you'll see the shift in chapter 40 as we read through this. So from here on, beginning with Isaiah 40, God uses a group of messages comforting Israel while in captivity in Babylon. So today we're going to hear some voices that will bring us comfort and some questions that will help us remember and bring us a fresh perspective. Now for some of you, some, you could silently fill in the blank to the following phrase. This is a dark and difficult time for me because of... And you can fill in the blank. This is a dark and difficult time for me because of... And then you fill in the blank silently. And most people have great difficulties in life. You may be one of those going through difficulties right now. God knows you need comfort. Everyone has experienced, is experiencing, or will experience some hurt, some crisis situation that causes them extreme pain and brings on grief. And some of you are too well aware of grief these days. You live in it, you have lived in it, you're still in the residual effects of that. The problem with grief is that those who experience it feel so helpless to do anything about it. it just comes upon you. What do you do with something like that? Those who are in pain and grief need comfort. And to comfort someone means to soothe them in their distress and sorrow. So what do we, what do we, what do we tell the hurting who need comfort? If we know someone who's going through a difficult time and we feel like we need to comfort them, how do we do that? What do we say? Do we just tell them to suck it up, buttercup? About time. Been long enough. Of course not. Of course not. God cares for the hurting and we should care too. God is the one who can truly comfort the discouraged and He calls His people to be part of that comfort as well. And I trust that as as you go through your days and as we meet together and maybe even during the potluck as we share together and talk, you might find out that there are people around you that need comfort. They need God's comfort. And you can be the messenger of that in some way. Isaiah 40 contains a great combination of voices calling out and questions being asked to remind us of, of who God is and how he can provide the comfort we need in our situation. Now, in your bulletin is an uh, uh, area in the back where you can take notes, disregard the title of the message. Stephanie had a different idea, I guess, of what I was supposed to preach on. And, uh, but actually, it's, it's a comforting hope, comforting hope, not a house. <laughs> so we'll uh, docker pay for that one anyway. <laughs> so Have you heard any voices lately? (laughs) Careful how you answer that question because you might be taken away by those people in the white jackets. I hope you can hear these voices at the beginning of Isaiah 40. There are three voices that call out from chapter 40 that show us what it means to prepare the way for the Lord. If we want to see revival happen in our lives and discover the comfort we search for, we need to follow that voice. In uh, the first five verses of Isaiah 40, Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the first voice, I trust that you can hear, and you can write it down if you want, if you're taking notes, is a call to righteousness, a call to righteousness, This is a call for our generation to turn back to God and experience genuine revival. In ancient times when a king would travel, since there were no highways or roads, a traveling group of sometimes hundreds of people would go before the king, literally removing any obstacles and filling any rough places in the path so that the king's progress would be smooth and unhindered. Becky and I take walks around over at Clackamas Community College and there's a path that goes all the way around it. Sometimes it's gravel, sometimes it's, it's pavement. And in the gravel areas, when we walked around, there's a garden, a community garden area at uh, that college. And as we walk around that area, there are a lot of potholes in that graveled area, that driveway. And fascinating enough, one time when we walked through there, they were all filled in with gravel. We were like, why? What's going on? And we found out there was going to be a cross-country meet going on, and so they prepared the place so these important people coming to run could take care of their ankles and not fall and trip. And so they were making sure that the ground was level and prepared as well too. Now this passage is quoted by all four of the gospel writers who understood this to be more than Israel returning from captivity. They 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 understood this this as John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist is preparing the way for the greatest comfort of all time, which is delivering man from the captivity of sin. And this was John the Baptist's call to prepare the way for Jesus, and it is the same call for us. The idea of preparing the way of the Lord is is the real preparation that must take place in our hearts. Building a road is very much like the preparation God must do in our hearts. They are both expensive, they both must deal with many different problems and environments, and they both take an expert engineer. Any great work of God begins with great preparation. And you can be reminded of that illustration or that principle as you look out around us here with the construction going on and how long that has taken. And I'm sure it has uh, incurred a lot of expense by uh, the county or the city, whoever's taking care of this. But as the construction continues on, they're trying to make sure the road becomes level and, and prepared for everyone. To prepare the way for the coming of the Lord into our lives, it starts with personal holiness and purity in our hearts, in our minds, as well as in our actions. Because you can't expect to continue in sin and expect God to work powerfully in your life. If there's a mixture going on, you're not going to get the full uh, presence of God in your life in that way. There's always going to be something causing us to stumble, something keeping you from that abundant life. So in order to be comforted, we need to prepare the way for the Lord in our lives. And look with me in verses 6 through 8. It says, "'A voice says, cry out,' and I said, "'What shall I cry?' All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, and the grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. So the second voice is a call to the word of God. The Word of God. The message here is the, is, is the frailty of man. We are feeble. We are so limited. Isaiah thinks of the beautiful green grass covering the hills of Judah after the winter rains and how quickly the grass dies and the hills are left brown and barren. <laughs> kind of reminds me of our, our front yard, <laughs> how it got pretty brown and dry during this summer. And it's going to probably green up here pretty soon with all the rains covered. But this is how frail and weak man is. Even the beauty of man is fleeting and passes as quickly as spring wildflowers. There's no good news here at all. <laughs> the good news, though, is in the eternal Word of God, the basis for our faith, as Isaiah taught. And Peter applies these words to the gospel as a basis for our life of love. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23-25, through 25. you can jot that down and read it later if you'd like, but It says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. For, and he quotes, all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Then this is the Word that was preached to you. So in a world filled with uncertainty, there is stability and deep-rootedness in the Word of God. When everyone is going nuts about the economy, freaked out by the elections, and overly anxious about the problems of the world, God says that He has the power to bring death, but also the power to bring life. In verse 8, God, uh, grass withers, flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. It's important that we never neglect the Word in our daily lives because it brings us instruction, it brings us encouragement. It brings us guidance, and it brings us hope. So our comfort comes from the Word of God. Don't neglect it in your life. Then look with me in verses 9 through 11. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and His arm rules for Him. See, His reward is with Him, and His recompense accompanies Him. He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms and carries them close to His heart. He gently leads those that have young. So the third voice that we, I trust, can hear is a call to worship, a call to worship. This is a call to see God as He really is and to respond to that reality. For so many of us, it's hard to worship God because we don't really have that clear picture of who He is. Our worship is kind of skewed in a way. Worship is always a response to His Word, and His Word is a revelation of Himself and who He is. When we see God for who He really is, the natural response is to be in awe of His character, the beauty of His majesty, the the weight of His glory, the the depth of His love and the power of His sovereignty. Through this, we are invited, in verse 9, to behold your God. (laughs) Behold your God. And also, to, uh, in in verse 10, to behold the returning Lord, in verse 11, the loving shepherd. All of these we are to behold, as uh, another version speaks of. is, is written in that, in that portion of Scripture. Our God will return to this earth, and He will come with power. And when He comes back, He comes to reward His people and to inspect His work. And another aspect of our God to behold is, of course, the, that loving care as a shepherd. The first thing a shepherd must do for his sheep is feed them. And God feeds us like a shepherd feeds his flock. See, our Lord shows special care for the lambs, the youngest, the weakest, are not despised. They are given special care by the Lord, who first actively gathers them and will carry them in his bosom. He doesn't just throw the weak lambs over shoulder and call it good, as a shepherd might carry sheep, but he, he lovingly cradles them in his bosom, close to his heart. This is both a safe place and a tender place. And I trust that through your difficulties, through your dark time, you have felt the Lord's bosom in that way as He draws you close to Himself, as you feel that safe place, as you feel that tender place. And there's a balanced view here of God between these two verses, verses 10 and 11. One arm is that of power and authority, a king who rules with might and strength. The other arm, in verse 11, is that of tenderness and love. The shepherd who gathers his lambs and carries them close to his heart. And God knows the perfect balance with each one of us. He knows what we need. He knows how much, uh, how much uh, power and authority we might need or see in our lives. He also knows how much tenderness and care and love needs to be shown. But well, we find comfort when we worship God for who He really is and respond to that reality? So these voices bring comfort to our lives as we we prepare the way for the Lord in our lives, as we rely upon the Word of God in our life, and and worship God for who He really is. Then in the following verses, Isaiah moves from the voices calling us to righteousness and the Word of God and worship to the questions that remind us of who God is. So in these verses, we need to remember who God is. Remember your God. There are people who know how to ask best questions. Maybe you have someone in your life that does that. You have a good friend, you meet them for coffee or whatever, and they say, so let me ask you a question. And that question just like hits deep and helps you be able to get right to the root of the situation and you move forward with that. Those who have friends like that are are blessed (laughs) because they are able to have God guide them through those friendships. There's a lot of power in good questions, because sometimes a question is so pointed that it leaves no possible answer, but absolute truth. There's no wiggle room, there's no no way to get out of it. There can be no hesitation, just plain truth. In the Bible, there are many questions like this. Think of the powerful questions in Romans 8, like verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Or verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You can only answer those questions with the affirmation that nobody can stand against us and nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. There are many questions near the end of the book of Job when God confronts man with His his greatness as creator. Think of of Job 38, verse 4, God's hard and humbling question, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Not much Job could say to that. In this section of Isaiah 40, we find a whole series of questions that furthers our comfort by describing a God who is able. And many of them are asked, and many must be answered with a nobody or nothing, like the question in verse 18 of of, of Isaiah 40, to whom then will you compare God? Or what image will you compare Him to?" There's a lot of power in that question because the answer is that God is incomparable. God is unique. God is singular. So Isaiah asks all these questions for a reason. At the beginning of this chapter, we saw how comfort was brought to God's people because God will deliver, and one day He'll bring them back from exile and restore them. But this was a hard truth for Judah to accept. Really? We're going to be rescued? Really? This is going to happen? Look where we're at. And maybe it seemed like God's hands were were tied. He wasn't able to prevent the Babylonians from capturing the land in in the first place. So was He really going to be able to bring His people home? And Isaiah's answer is simple, but profound, to put the spotlight onto God's character. Like in verse 5, And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. God is going to show His majesty and reveal His greatness. God can save. And not just because He is greater than Babylon's many gods, He can save because God is the only God. To whom shall the Lord be made equal? There really is none who can compare with Him. And when we really see that truth, and we accept it, then we'll be comforted in all our trouble, and in all our sin, and all our brokenness. To whom will you compare God? In these verses, we will find that He is Lord of creation, He is Lord of the nations, and He is Lord of His people. So in your distress and trouble, I trust that one of these reminders of of who God is will bring you comfort. This portion of Isaiah 40 asks a lot of questions. And here we see how He is Lord of creation. And that's how our text begins in verse 12 with a set of questions meant to, be, to bring the reader to the point of confessing that the Lord is the only Creator. Verse 12, "...who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand, or with the breadth of His hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance?" Isaiah speaks here about all of creation. You you, you probably picture the prophet standing on a high hill and with the ocean out in front of him and the sky above him and, and a range of mountains and hills and plains all around behind him. And he says that all of it, the seas and the dry land, the heavens and the earth have been made by God. And when God made it all, it was like the Lord was working as a a master craftsman at at His workbench. He measured and He poured, He calculated and and He shaped. All was His to mold after His own and His own will. And, and, And with personal attention, He brought everything into being. So all at once, we're confronted with our own limitations and powerlessness, right next to the Almighty God. When we make our way through this world, we sometimes feel significant and valuable. But Scripture says we're but tiny players on a massive stage. We are travelers passing through who will soon be forgotten. We can't control anything or have any permanent impact on the world we live in. But God, God is greater. He holds all creation in His hand, stirring up the storms, shaking the earth, Generating ocean currents and sending the wind, He's a great God. And here's the good news message. In Christ, He is our God, and so we have that relationship. Another question in verse 13, who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed Him as His counselor? In the ancient world, the gods of the nations weren't usually imagined to be all-knowing. They had power and ability, and that's why people prayed to them. But the gods also needed help so the gods would have a council of lesser beings to advise them, even humans to assist them. Why don't you try this, Zeus? Uh, Have you thought of this? Today, too, we put a high value on collaboration, don't we? Everyone needs the input of others, benefits from guidance and and, 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 and accountability. There's a lot of truth to that. We even, uh, within our group here, Pastor Parish Relations Committee, I benefit from that greatly, Collaborating with them, what needs to happen, what should go on, what's the direction we should go with with this, and we collaborate together. But God is different. He requires no counselor, no advisory body, because He is infinitely knowledgeable, and His wisdom is unsearchable. Verse 14, "'Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten, enlighten Him?' And who taught Him the right way? Who was it that taught Him knowledge or showed Him the path of understanding? Do you hear the answer that's implied there? (laughs) Nobody gave counsel to God or helped God to see the truth. His wisdom has always been perfect, for He is Lord of creation and eternal. He's the one who sees the end from the beginning. And that's an encouragement when we think about how the Lord manages this world and how He directs our lives. And all He does, and all He he decides, His understanding is flawless. He always knows what is the best path for us to take. And He's always sure on the destination. He will bring us there, and it will be good. You might not see it now. It might be pretty dark for you right now. But as you follow God, and you trust in Him, He's taking you to a place that is good, leading you through those difficult times. There's many occasions when we might question that, like Judah must have. Hardship especially makes us question God's wisdom, right? We don't want to have pain in our lives. And when that happens, we're going, wait a minute, God, are you sure this is supposed to happen this way? Is this exile thing such a good idea, God? Did the temple really have to be demolished? Really? Or what's the good that can possibly come out of this heartbreak in my life? Am I only drifting or is God leading me to a clear purpose? You can trust that He is. He needs no teacher. He has no need for your input. His plan for you is without mistake and it is good. There are plenty of things in Judah's situation to to discourage and intimidate them. And this can be all that we see, too. Things on our own horizon, stuff that just kind of intimidates us. Our own level, like our family problems, or that annoying sin in our lives, or those cruel enemies in our lives. Then we need to look up and see the Lord of creation, as verse 26 tells us. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one." How different our view on life would be if we were quicker to look up and to remember God. Because looking up with the eyes of faith, we get an immediate reminder of His glory. There is a God. He made everything, and He governs everything, all for us. This is how verse 22 describes His glory. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Probably the most impressive part of God's creation will always be the sky and stars and planets above us. If you go outside at night and if you can get away from the city lights, pretty impressive stuff out there. There's nothing quite like the night sky to make us feel small. But to the great God, Isaiah says, these magnificent heavens are like the curtains in our living room, easily pushed back and tucked away. To God, even the glorious sky is like His tent, a humble home for the Lord, put up and taken down at His will. The Lord of creation can intervene and shape and manage as He pleases. And the care of God is personal. He's not some distant CEO seated in his corner office, content to read reports from his employees. God is near. And speaking of God's creation of the stars, Isaiah says that He calls them each by name in verse 26, because of His great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Of all the stars in in, in the galaxy, there is neither one more nor one less than God determines. So think of the care God takes for us. We're not on the same level as, as those most impressive stars. We are far more exalted than they are because we are created in God's image. And God redeemed us in the precious blood of His Son, Jesus. He knows each of us by name and by the greatness of His his might and strength, of His power. Not one of His children will ever be missing. He knows where they're at. For God cannot forget. He cannot falter. He cannot change. He cannot be unfaithful to His promise. To whom, then, will you compare God? He is Lord of creation, Lord of the nations as well, as we see here in these next verses. In the time of Isaiah, Judah was often worrying about the nations. What was Syria up to? Would Egypt come to the rescue? When would us, Syria, invade? And not much of of that has changed for us today, really. The nations still cause distress. What if China gets aggressive? How can can Russia be restrained? Will North Korea do something crazy and stupid? (laughs) Will our country remain a, remain a friendly, friendly place for the church? We face our vulnerability here as well. We feel like we don't have a lot of say in politics. We cast our vote, usually doesn't go our way. But at the global level, we're very susceptible to the shifts in world economics or government. But our God is greater, God is much greater. Verse 15 says, "'Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket.'" They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust." Isaiah lets us see the true picture of God's sovereignty here. The Lord holds the very seas in His hand, so that... So, so, so what are the nations? <laughs> they are just a drop of water splashing out of His cleaning bucket onto the bathroom floor. A drop soon dried and then disappeared. The Lord lifts the islands like they were nothing, so what are the nations? They are just a bit of dust, wiped from the bathroom scales, too insignificant to even register. And as verse 17 puts it, all the nations are as nothing, they are regarded by Him as worthless and less than nothing. That's not much, (laughs) less than nothing. Now, it doesn't always seem like this. Some countries are very impressive with populations into the billions, with an influence that reaches into every corner of the globe, with military strength that makes other nations hesitate to do anything to oppose them. From Washington to Moscow to Beijing, there are nations who are great in their own eyes. But what are they before God? Light and fleeting and soon-forgotten while our God reigns." So when God looks down on the earth in verse 22, tells us that its people, its people are like grasshoppers. <laughs> they look like grasshoppers, kind of like the bugs in your own backyard crawling around. You could crush them with no effort at all. <laughs> was one, one evening, I walked down our front porch to go turn off the water during the summertime. I heard a crunch, and I was like, oh, I looked, and it was a snail. I was like, oh, sorry, <laughs> didn't see you. But the same thing here, kind of like those bugs. You could crush them with no effort at all, and such is the greatness of God, where all people are like insects, fragile and totally under His control. In the same way, God is not uh, intimidated by the presidents and prime ministers of the world. For in verse 23, He brings the princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. To God, even the mightiest men and women are like plants which quickly fade away. Verse 24, no sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, than He blows on them and they wither. And of course, Judah knew all this. They'd been taught the ways of the Lord, just as we have. God had always revealed Himself as the Almighty God, the great and only King, the Lord of hosts. In that sense, Isaiah 40 was nothing new. It was unchanging truth, giving a fresh look. We know it too. But Judah needed to review these truths like we do. Look at verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has, has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? So more questions with more obvious answers. Yes, you do know this, Judah. You've heard this before. I've told you this from the beginning, but now you need to believe it. God speaks this to reassure His people, to adjust our vision so we have a clear view of the world. He kind of needs to do that, maybe on a daily basis with us. The nations are like nothing to God. Their populations are like grasshoppers in His eyes, and their princes are like fading flowers. So be encouraged. Don't fear. Don't plan how you can get out of this, but but keep your gaze fixed on the glory of God. That's where we need to watch. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? (laughs) Have you forgotten that God sits above the earth and its habitants again are like insects before Him? To whom can you compare God? Or with whom will... Will He be equal? No one. Nothing. He is sovereign. He is faithful. He is unchanging. So you can trust in God always, and you should worship Him with all your heart. God is worthy of more worship than anyone could ever give. Verse 16 says, Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. God is so great that even all the mighty forests of Lebanon wouldn't create a sufficient bonfire for His altar. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, those kinds of trees. They're huge. And God is so great that there is a stockyard big enough that that would have enough animals for sacrifice to Him. There's nothing that a human can give that would be capable of putting God in your debt. Not your money, not your prayers, not not all your suffering, for He alone is Lord. And here is the wonder of God's grace, that He delights in the adoration of His people. And this glorious God seeks a relationship with sinners like us. He wants to be with us. Then we see here that He is Lord of His people. So if all this is true about God, then there's only one response that He seeks. And that's where Isaiah is going with all this. As he asks in verse 18, To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare Him to? That question admits only one answer. God is incomparable, and and you must serve Him alone. If God is Lord of all creation, and God is Lord of all the nations, then His people should never put their trust in anything else but God. But the temptation of false gods and idols remain very real for Judah and it remains real for us too. When you're feeling the pinch, getting getting desperate, some visible, tangible, controllable security seems like a great idea. And that's what the gods of the nations offered. If you bring a gift, if you offer a sacrifice, if you pray a prayer, the gods will show favor. So, Idol-making was big business in Judah. Verse 19, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. Selecting quality wood and carving it, overlaying with precious metals, setting up a shrine, an idol could look pretty impressive. Something that just might help you in your hour of need. But will you really compare God to an idol made by a craftsman? It's ridiculous, isn't it? And it should be ridiculous to us. (laughs) Will you really trust in something that God created rather than God Himself? Will you you really find hope in your money, in your finances, in your things? Will you find hope in yourself, in your body, in your fitness, in your health? Will you find hope in, in the praise of other people? There's nothing there but things that God made or God provided. There's no power but human power, which soon fades. Instead, we know that God is the only Lord of His people, the only refuge we need, the only Savior. But we're always ready to doubt the greatness of God. Isaiah here anticipates what the exiles will be thinking as they suffer in Babylon. They'll conclude that God has forsaken them and given up on them. The prophet confronts their mistaken view of God here in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Well, it's true, isn't it? (laughs) When we're pressed and anxious, the reality of God's care can seem so distant. Where are you, God? How come you're not helping me right now? How come you're not taking this away from me at this moment? Is God really with me still? Does He actually watch over my way? Then we have to remember the truth. We have learned it. We need to learn it again. Do you not know? Have you not heard? And Isaiah asks, how can you not know this? (laughs) God is faithful, and He will certainly do something about your trouble. So rest in Him. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. So if you're looking for help, don't turn to idols, but know that God is eager to help. Verse 29, He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. And that is where we all need to go for our strength. The truth is, even the most vigorous things in creation cannot keep themselves going. Think of young men and women in the prime of life when they are energetic, ambitious, knowing knowing they can take on the world. Nothing slows them down. (laughs) Just consider Ricky Powers. All ready to go. Maybe that's how we all like to imagine ourselves. Capable, competent, and always able to keep going. (laughs) But as verse 30 says... Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. For all of us, some of us sooner than others, the time will come when our natural resources fail. We will reach the end of ourselves, and the sooner we reach that point, the better, because God has blessings to give to those who hope in Him. Verse 31, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. To wait on God is to live with the confident expectation that He will take action on our behalf. And He will do it when the time is right. His understanding is perfect, remember? His wisdom is unsearchable and His love for us is true. He showed His love for us beyond any doubt at the cross when He sent His only Son. And we know this God and His glory. So waiting on God is refusing to run ahead of Him and solve our own problems. Look for resources that we have at hand instead of trusting in God for what He has. And those who do, as verse 31 says, will soar on wings like eagles. Like birds of prey riding in the wind currents and soaring with no apparent effort. In a similar way, God will lift us up. It doesn't depend on our effort. It doesn't even depend on our faith. It depends on God. Those who are filled with His strength, those who know His grace in Christ Jesus, will run and not grow weary. Those who go with the Lord will walk and not be faint. Do you not know this? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Our God is the almighty creator, glorious king, and our loving father in Christ Jesus. He is faithful. He is good. He is gracious. To whom then will you compare God? Or what image will you compare him to? Nothing. Nothing at all. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the Lord of the nations, and He is the Lord of His people. So wait on Him. Wait on Him, and He will renew your strength. Are you going through some difficulties? Are you going through some dark times? Have you waited upon Him? Is your hope in Him? Are you anticipating how He's going to provide the strength in your weary moment? You can't do it on your own. You can try. You're going to fail. But God will help you through your situation. What is it? What is it that's going on with you right now? Are you trusting God? If not, oh, maybe you have and you're growing weary. If you're growing weary, be reminded He gives you the strength. He'll help you run. He'll help you walk. He will be with you. Worship team is going to come on up. They're going to lead us in some songs. As they do, I just trust that God will continue to speak to your hearts about what He has for you, who He is and what He can do in your life. No matter what you're going through, And you know, He knows what you're going through. He knows how you feel about these things. Are you in agreement with how God can help you? Are you in in agreement with Him, allowing Him to take your hand, lead you through? Trust in Him. And maybe this might be a time of prayer for you. Spend a little time in prayer with God and say, I need to wait upon you more, Lord. I need your strength. I need your wisdom. I need your ability to make it through. Maybe this could be a time of prayer for you as we sing these these songs.